Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Thursday, May 24th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's program, we're going to speak with Joe Shinelli, Executive Director of AMVETS, about everything that's taking place within the world of the VSOs. And we're going to have a very special guest come in to talk to us about Rolling Thunder, the massive motorcycle rally that's taking place this weekend and through to Memorial Day with all sorts of events beyond just the motorcycle ride on Sunday. There are a ton of things going on that are paying respects to those who gave their lives and bringing attention to those who are still unaccounted for. All of that still to come on today's morning briefing, and we begin it by welcoming Jake Hughes into the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm all right. You know, rode the bike into work for the uh, second day in a row, which is always nice. It was a little chillier this morning than yesterday. Yeah, a little bit. It's supposed to be warmer today, but it was chillier, but still, eh, what are you going to do? A lot more motorcycles on the road each day that I'm out there, and uh, you would think that that would cut back on the traffic, but not so much. Yeah, just because they ride a motorcycle doesn't mean they know how to ride a motorcycle. Yeah, well, I don't think the motorcycles are the issue so much. I saw a commuter bus that they have, you know, where people park in a commuter lot, all get on a giant charter bus, essentially, and brings them into the city. I saw one of those just decide, like, yeah, I've been in this left turn only lane for... (laughs) It's got to be a half mile that he was in there and didn't apparently notice any of the signs and then just decided he was going to cut over into the to go straight across. It's like, dude, you you just risked causing a massive accident that could have cost lives. And instead of doing what, taking a left, a right and then another right. I mean, you would have been right back where you needed to go. It's it's not the people on the motorcycles that are the problem, typically, with some exceptions. Yeah. If you have a sport bike, you've done some dumb things. I yes. guarantee it because I see them doing it all the time. I saw one this morning. Guy was riding behind me, and then I guess he wanted to show off or something. He was like, yeah, I'm going to go past him real fast. And he his back tire skidded because he didn't realize how tight the turn ahead was. It happens. Hey, everybody out there, slow down, or I should say, go the speed limit. Because yes. if I say slow down, there could be someone listening saying, Oh, okay. Like the lady I saw this morning who was going 25 in a 45. It's like, come on, man. You're you're, you're going to cause even more accidents. But there are, um, you know, things that you just have to deal with every yeah. day. And one of them is bad drivers. Again, until it's legal to install a missile launcher on the front of your car and destroy bad drivers, that's just the way it's going to be. I want twin miniguns on my bike. That would be pretty good. I've seen some movies where they had things like that. There was one really bad movie. I think it was called like Warriors of the Lost World that they even did a Mystery Science Theater 3000 about, which had the guy from The Paper Chase, I think, was the star of it, and the woman from Star Trek or Star Trek Two. I can't remember her name. Anyway, he had a motorcycle that had guns on the front of it. He also wore a helmet, as I do when I ride, and you do when you ride, I assume, right? Yes. They're required down here, aren't they? Yes. I think in DC. There are helmet laws here. D.C., Virginia, Maryland, there are helmet laws. My home state of Connecticut, no helmet laws. In the military, eh, not so much helmet laws, but you have, you know, put on your helmet. (laughs) Why why wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, I did 
a couple of times outside the wire when I was with some people who didn't wear helmets. They're like, you can take your helmet off. If anything happens here, your helmet ain't going to protect you. It's like, well, okay. There are issues with many of the helmets that the military uses and questions as to how well they protect our heads. Well, there's a story coming out that the people who make helmets for the NFL want to help curb head injuries of soldiers and Marines. Now, I see the look on Jake's face. This is radio, so you can't see the look on Jake's face. But isn't the NFL dealing with traumatic brain injuries and, and very poorly CTE, all these things that are uh, that are because the helmets that they're using are not capable of dealing with the speed of two very fast, very large humans slamming into each other, which still pales in comparison to the force generated by an explosion, say. I I don't understand. Now, this is V-I-C-I-S. I don't know if that's pronounced Vichy's or Vicky's or Vissy's. They're the maker of the Zero One football helmet, which is supposed to be, you know, the next advance in football helmets, and it's going to change everything. We'll see. I mean, yeah. a helmet can only do so much because what, what the injuries are often caused by in football and in the military and many of these traumatic brain injuries, you do have those where there's external force that causes, you know, an external injury as well, a crushed skull. You've seen people with that who have a big a divot in their head essentially left more often than not, though, the head is actually not too damaged on the outside. It's the brain on the inside, and your brain is separated from the skull by some liquid. That's about, I don't know, a quarter of an inch, half an inch, or something like that. Your brain's just banging off the walls inside, and that's where most of these injuries come from. And that's why football players oftentimes look incredibly healthy afterwards. Junior Seau, the retired linebacker, looked like he was in... Excellent condition for a man of his age, a man who was 50 or so. And what you couldn't see is that he had uh, severe brain injuries over the years from his brain banging around inside of his skull and bouncing off the walls. And he ended up taking his own life. It's interesting to hear about this partnership. I mean, yes, this company is supposed to be making like the the new football helmet. So the Zero One just came out last year. And it's apparently the first football helmet to account for rotational as well as linear impact. Here's the thing. There's still impacts and it doesn't, you can't stop the brain from bouncing around inside of the head. I mean, it's just, it's physics. That's the way it's going to be. It's one of those things where some people have said, Hey, you know what? Maybe in the NFL, what we should do is get rid of helmets altogether. The reasoning being when you know, you don't have a helmet, you're going to slow down because your <laughs> body's not going to be able to handle going at that speed. Um, yeah, so we'll see if anything comes out of that. I mean, any any progress they can make to make it better is good, so I don't want to sound like I'm just crapping on the idea. But, again, NFL helmets, yeah. that, that's maybe not who you want working on military helmets. Plus, but, you know, it's not just traumatic brain injury that to protect on. They have to protect from, you know, like uh, bullets. Yeah, but our helmets don't. Ricochets. That's it. like if it's if you're getting shot straight on with your Kevlar helmet, <laughs> that thing's going straight through your Kevlar helmet. It's it's they don't protect bullets. They're more for shrapnel injuries and 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 force and all those things. But an actual bullet, I remember going going through and uh, and seeing training on those helmets and being like, this is what'll happen if a round from an AK-47, which I believe what they're seven point six two, right? Yep, a seven point six two round from an AK-47 hits that helmet straight on, and it just put a hole straight through the front and back of the helmet. It went through the whole thing. So, 
you know, it's one of those it's one of those things where yeah, I guess it, I mean it could protect you in certain situations and if a, if a round is coming at an angle, then it can push it away. They don't deal well with direct hits. I mean, hell, as they showed the uh the body armor didn't deal well with uh, direct hits in many cases. So, if that's not with your big plates inside, I don't know how well the helmets are going to do. But, uh, you know, we shouldn't it's easy to say, like, oh, the NFL, the people that are dealing with everybody having a CTE, they're going to help with the military helmets. But if something good comes out of this, if any improvement comes out of this, great. Yeah. Great. So, you know, yeah, we'll make fun of it and be like, oh, that's an interesting partner for something like this. But the reality is we want to see things uh, get better. And I don't know how much better they can get. I mean, that's the thing. When you talk about explosions, when you talk about vehicle rollovers, there are certain things where just the amount of force involved, there's not much that you can do short of, well, here's an idea. Do you remember the movie Demolition Man with uh, Sylvester Stallone? Yes, I think I know what you were talking about. Sandra Bullock and they had the, you know, the three shells when they went to the bathroom instead of toilet paper. The future was strange. Taco Bell was like a church, essentially, like uh, everybody prayed to Taco Bell. It was a, it was a strange movie. Wesley Snipes was in it uh, as the bad guy. And Sylvester Stallone was in a car accident and the car filled up with like this foam, like instantaneously just like I don't know how you would like like styrofoam essentially like this styrofoam liquid came up and then solidified and that kept him from being injured inside of the car. Where's that technology? I know, right? It's 2018, man. That movie came out. I'm going to say 1994, 1995. Let's double check right now to make sure if I'm right. So we're talking 20 years ago at least. Yeah, 1993. So I was even past it. 25 years and we still don't have Demolition Man styrofoam. What's going on, people? I know. Science is lagging, man. When I was a kid, back in the 80s, we were sure we'd have flying cars by the time I got my driver's license. Yeah. Then I got my driver's license. Back to the Future 2 took place in 2015. Yeah, three years ago. Where did we mess up? Or did someone come back in the timeline and change things so that we wouldn't have flying You'd cars? never know. Because let me tell you, we've already talked about traffic and bad drivers. Now imagine those people flying through the skies in cars (laughs) with uh, the ability to travel not just forward, back, left, right, but up, down, and all around, like 360-degree rotational uh, travel. I think that's a bad idea. I think think we should make the driver's exam much harder. I think it should be difficult to qualify for a driver's license. I also think that if you use those self-checkout things at the grocery store, you should have had to go through training or pass some sort of test to use those. The other day, I spent 10 minutes while some lady kept trying to scan the same thing over and over again that wouldn't scan instead of hitting the call help button. I eventually said, hey, there's a button. You can call someone over. They'll fix it. That's not going to scan. Well, I'm, I'm just trying that you've been sitting here for like 10 minutes. It's not going to. Again, that person should be barred forever from using those things. <laughs> no, it's, it would. life would be so much simpler if we just re- require people to be qualified to do things. Think about how that works in the military. Think about what it would be like if you had someone standing uh, gate guard duty, standing watch out there who had never gone through any qualification versus someone who does. One, that gate is probably going to be all sorts of screwed up. It's going to be backed up or everybody's going to be getting in. That's going to be the two options. Whereas if you have someone who's properly trained, they're going to be able to keep traffic flowing. They're going to keep things uh, the way that they're supposed to be. You just want training for anything that inconveniences you. Yes. Yes, because I know I could pass all of these trainings, and I know that many people couldn't, because I think about the old George Carlin thing, 
think about how stupid the average person you meet is and then realize that half of them are dumber than that. That's an upsetting fact of life, but it is a fact of life. So, yeah, I know I could pass them, so I'm not worried about it. It's one of those things where people people be like, well, that's not fair. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care about fairness. I care about let's make life easier for those people who are able to do things well. There you go. That's my political slogan if I do. Speaking of politics, Dan Crenshaw, former guest of the show. I know, right? In your hometown of Houston, he won in a landslide the runoff for the Republican nomination down there. It was two hours after the polls closed. They had only counted like 2% of the vote. His opponent said, ah, yeah, I'm done. I, I withdraw. I concede and congratulated Crenshaw for that. Um, this was a uh, something that a lot of people were predicting. But again, with politics, you never know. And I think it was a great example of, and we wrote a story about this uh, based on our last interview with Crenshaw. It's on the website. You can look it up. Just search SEAL or Dan Crenshaw on ConnectingBets.com and you'll find it. He talked about the negative campaigning that his opponent was doing, where his opponent called him, uh, said that he didn't have any real world experience. Now, that's just a bad speechwriter yeah. or him going off teleprompter. Because what they were trying to say, I would assume, is he has no real political experience, no legislative experience. But when you use the term real-world experience for a Navy SEAL who gave his eye and almost his life for this country, uh, that's going to backfire on you poorly. He also had a, um, you know, someone who was kind of affiliated loosely with the campaign, a supporter, who writes a political guide down there that apparently is, uh, is big in the Houston political world. I was reading about this. The guide decided to describe Dan Crenshaw, United States Navy SEAL, as jobless and living at home with his parents. Now, when you hear someone say that, don't you think of like that news story from yesterday on the parents who had their 30 year old son? I love that. That was awesome. (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things where I couldn't wait to get out of the house. And, And I think most people feel that way, which is why. There's such a disconnect when we see a story like that. We see someone, you're 30 years old and you don't want to leave the house. He's also clearly uh, intelligent. He, he, you know, mounted his own legal defense. The lawyer actually commended him on the research that he did, but said, no, you don't have any right to stay yeah. in that house. I mean, I lived with my mom for a month after I got out of the army. But that's because my plans have fallen apart and I didn't have anywhere else to go. But as soon as I had the ability, I moved out. Oh, yeah. So that was I, I stayed at my mom's house for a couple months and we drove each other insane. So it was like, yeah, I got to get my own place. I got to find something. And I did. Uh, so I think it was a couple months that I was there. But that's also kind of out of necessity. Like when I got out, I wasn't expecting to get out of the military. It all happened rather quickly from April to June. So we're talking two months, essentially, from when I found out that the Navy wasn't going to let me reenlist, which was a shock to me, my command, a whole bunch of people. But it happened. Uh, from when I found that out to when I went on terminal leave was about two months. So I didn't have a lot of time to prepare into what I was going to do. Um, so I went back and stayed with, uh, stayed with my mother and then eventually found an apartment and there you go. Things moved on. Dan Crenshaw, similar situation, medically retired as a Navy SEAL. Uh, again, after the injuries that he suffered from that IED blast that took his eye, he actually went 
back to serving and deployed again with the SEALs. I don't believe he was uh, fully operational when he deployed, but he was able to deploy with them. Um, he got out. He then, of course, went to school, went to the, uh, the he was an officer in the Navy, so he was already a college graduate, went to the Kennedy School up at Harvard and got his master's up there. And then he comes home to Houston, where you're from. And do you remember anything important last year that happened in Houston that might have affected Gosh, people's plans? I'm trying to think. Uh, th- something to do with rain. Hmm. Not sure. It was rainy. That's that's how yeah. we'll describe it. That's how this. It guy was a little have, moist. That's how this guy would have described it. Like we could say, Dan Crenshaw finished up at the Kennedy School. He and his wife moved back to Houston and with his parents, where they planned to search for a home. And then it got rainy. That's that's how that guy would have described it. Of course, we would say Hurricane Harvey hit. That caused some delays with it. And then also uh, he found out that Congressman Poe down there was not going to run for uh, office again after serving seven terms. So he said, all right, I'm going to try and do this. And it's most efficient for us to not focus on the House thing and focus fully on this. So the parents offered to let them stay. Again, they tried to put him through as like shiftless layabout, like neckbeard living in mom's basement at, at 35 years old. No, no, he's not. He's, he's not at all. So that backfired, obviously, quite largely. Now, the other funny thing about that story, and you can, again, find this story on ConnectingVets.com that I wrote based on the interview. Dan Crenshaw's opponents, uh, people affiliated with that, told a political uh, columnist down in Houston they felt they needed to kind of be a little dirty and take the low road, as it were, because he was, quote, too cool and, <laughs> quote, so sexy. And there's something to that. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a retired, medically retired Navy SEAL with one eye who either wears an eye patch most of the time. When he takes it off, has a glass eye with the Navy SEAL trident inside of it. There aren't many political opponents that you could have to face that are going to be able yeah. to uh, have those optics. But they have that cool factor. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that was certainly part of it. Got his foot in the door. And then uh, I think also his uh, a lot of his stances seem to resonate with the people of Texas 2nd District. And, uh, you know, so he, uh, he now moves on to face the uh, winner of the Democratic primary down there. And there are – he's just one of many veterans that, that took place in uh, some primary votes and runoffs and things like that. Uh, that took place in the last few days. Of course, Texas is set up a little bit differently. The original primary with, I think there were eight people going for the Republican nomination was a couple months ago. Wasn't yeah. It? Like April or even March, something like that. It was a couple months ago. And there were eight people involved in it. And it ended up being a runoff. Nobody got the over, I think it's over 50% of the vote or whatever required. So it goes to a runoff. Crenshaw had finished second to, I think, Kevin Roberts is his name, the guy who was running against a trial lawyer from Houston, and ended up uh, then destroying him in that runoff. There was also the first Marine Corps fighter pilot, first female Marine Corps fighter pilot, I should say. There have been, if you're the first Marine Corps fighter pilot and you're running for office now, that's impressive because you've got to be, I don't know, 100 and something years old because they date back. <laughs> they, they date back to, uh, they date back to, you know, World War One. So uh, she, and hold on, I want to get her, trying to look this up because I had her name in my head and now I want to make sure that I get it right. She's running in Kentucky. She is a, um, uh, she is, my goodness, where, what is going on? So we've had some computer issues here in the last few days. Uh, we have had, 
they decided to change our um, computer network over to a new one, and uh, it's caused some issues. So everything's a little slow. So bear with me. Amy McGrath. There you go. Marine Corps fighter pilot. First woman to fly an F-18 Hornet in combat. And she is uh, running for office in Kentucky's 6th Congressional District. She defeated Lexington Mayor Jim Gray in the Democratic primary there. Now, I've read some things that she's going to have a tough road because it is a, a fairly it's a fairly Republican area that she's in. However, again, with that background, being a Marine fighter pilot, being a trailblazer like she is, the first female fighter pilot to take an F-18 into combat, that is something that makes her a different type of opponent for whoever she's running against there. You're right. And I think that history has shown that veterans in politics tend to be less uh, heavy on the rhetoric. Like they, they tend to yeah. be more lean towards the center than to the far elements of their party. Yeah. Well, mostly because yeah, I can mostly. tell you there was a guy up in New York, and this made big news up there, and it made some national news, but this is, uh, it, it, it didn't go well for him. So he was a uh, Marine. He was in Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm combat veteran. Michael Grimm was his name, New York's 13, 13th District. Um, and I believe now he's a uh, convicted felon. He was convicted of some some sort of stuff <laughs> regarding campaign financing and all sorts of other stuff, uh, fundraising issues. He broke a bunch of laws. When he was called on that by a reporter, and I want to see if I can figure out, <laughs> I don't remember exactly who the uh, who the reporter was. But anyway, he he was accused of this stuff. People asked him, like, hey, what do you think about this? He threatened, I believe, to snap the reporter in half and throw him off a balcony within the uh, the Capitol. Ah, yeah. So, I mean, this is not um, <laughs> this is not yeah. all veterans, but there are many veterans. And from everything I've seen from Amy McGrath, seemed a pretty even keeled uh, individual who's just you know pretty fascinating and and has yeah. a fascinating background that certainly could benefit her even in a district where people think she's going to have a tough time winning as opposed to Dan Crenshaw where you know I, I don't think you can get to this point yet but a lot of people were saying the Republican nomination at that district uh, was essentially uh, a crowning of whoever was going to be the next um the next uh, representative for Texas 2nd district I think McGrath's background I think that makes her certainly electable um, you know, you'd have to look at all of her positions to figure out if that's someone who you could vote for. But I think back to Brian Staskavage, who visited us last year. Brian Staskavage is a great writer. He's a uh, former soldier who was going to school up in Connecticut, made some national headlines after he wrote something for their student paper that well, caused some controversy up at the school. He considers himself, you know, a Republican. He considers himself a little bit to the right of center, but also says, hey, I'd be more than willing to vote for a fellow veteran who's a Democrat because I think that they're probably going to be more in line with the way that I look at things and I know that I can trust them. So regardless of what political party you run for as a veteran, you do have, you know, there, there's some goodwill that you start out with. You can throw it away. You absolutely can. Look up Michael Grimm with two M's for an example of someone throwing it away. I mean, this is a Marine Corps combat veteran who then uh yeah it was in 2014 michael scotto was the reporter was interviewing Grimm in the u.s capitol building after the 2014 state of the union address and tried to ask 
Grimm about campaign finance questions, an investigation that was going on, uh, which Grimm would eventually be found guilty of uh, quite a few things regarding that, I believe. He said he wouldn't discuss the investigation. The reporter started asking again. Grimm walked off. And uh, he walked off and then he came back and said, I'll break you in half and uh, threatened to throw him over the balcony. So that's where your veteran goodwill can go a good ways away from you and you can lose it. But for people like Dan Crenshaw and people like Amy McGrath and all the other veterans who are out there running for office nationally and locally, there is some goodwill that you can start out with and, and you can leverage that into you know, not having to spend as much money as your opponents. You can look at Crenshaw and I think McGrath as well. Neither one of them raised as much money as their main competitors. Their main competitors were independently wealthy people, I believe, in, in both cases. So you have, uh, yeah, you had the former mayor of Lexington. So that's someone who has a lot of political cash, literally and uh, pun intended as well. There are... Uh, a lot of veterans out there doing amazing things in the world of politics and otherwise. And we talk to them here on the morning briefing and on ConnectingVets.com. And you should be checking out ConnectingVets.com on a daily basis or at the very least following us on social media. That way you'll get the newest links as they go out there. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So we'll click your mouse, tap your phone, and you will be living your best veteran life. You're listening to The Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Thursday, May 24th, 2018 edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com. Well, my friends, that's your website. Focusing entirely on the military and veteran experience, Entercom's ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of products, I suppose we could say. A variety of content. We have audio. You know that. You're listening to this. We also have great news stories going up there. We have things like Benefits in My Backyard from former VA employee Jonathan Kopanger, who points out some of those VA programs that you could benefit from that you probably don't know about. There's that and oh so much more available at ConnectingVets.com. And the best way to be kept abreast of what we're doing, follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guests are both veterans of that United States Army. Both retired veterans of the Army who are working with the United States of America Vietnam War commemoration. They're going to talk to us about that and about their involvement in Rolling Thunder, the massive motorcycle rally taking place this weekend. It's been going on for 33 years, and the next one is coming up in just a couple of days. They are retired Major General James Jackson, the director of the United States of America Vietnam War commemoration, and retired command sergeant major jimmy spencer also a consultant for the united states of america vietnam war commemoration gentlemen thank you so much for joining us this morning we really appreciate your time well thank you for allowing us to be here thank you general let's start with you we like to just talk a little bit about the careers of everybody that we talk to every veteran that we talk to so 
anyone who puts two stars on is going to have a lengthy career. I don't think we need to talk about every stop along the way, but can you give us the cliff notes of your time in the Army, you know, where you're from, when you joined, and, and what you did over those years you served? Sure, Eric. Uh, first of all, let me thank you for letting us be part of your event today and uh, help us get our message out. Uh, <clears throat> I come from a military family. Father was World War II Korea veteran. Uh, served 33 years, uh, came in ROTC out of Ohio, and uh, went on to serve in a variety of units across the country, primarily those units that go jumping out of airplanes. I stayed light, my uh, light infantry, uh, my career, uh, served 32 years, ended up here in the district, commanding the district, and retired from here. And Command Sergeant Major Spencer, let's ask about your career. Again, anyone who starts putting that many chevrons on that arm, that's someone who's going to have a lengthy career. What can you tell us about your time in the Army? Uh, well, it, it lasted for 32 years, and uh, I, I was forced out of the Army. Uh, I had to get out because I couldn't get used to getting up so darn early in the morning. <laughs> so, uh, I it took three decades to figure that out, it, huh? I'm, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> uh, I started off at a place called Mobile, Alabama. Uh, where I was born and raised, uh, right along the Gulf Coast. Uh, I didn't own a pair of long pants until I joined the Army. I ran around in bathing suits up until that point. Uh, and I started off as an instrument. Uh, this is back in the 1961-62 time frame. Uh, my career uh, involved uh, infantry units, uh, ranger units, and special uh, forces units. And I retired in 1993 as a command sergeant major of the United States Army Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Ah, a place that we're rather familiar with, and we've talked to we've talked to many people who are very intimately familiar with it. I think two or three in the last week. Tim Kennedy, who's still oh, yes. currently serving, and then uh, the founder of Go Ruck, Jason McCarthy, was also on. And really, an amazing community that comes out of Special Operations Command. And as you both just said, it lasted a very long time. But as in all good things, it must come to an end. General, what do you remember about your? transition going from a two-star general where i mean the command sergeant major can tell us those guys everything gets done for them they got people driving them around all sorts of good stuff you have to take off that uniform one day what do you remember about that point in your life going from that army life to the veteran community well i i don't notice i didn't notice that it was anything significant i mean it was uh, culturally it was a change uh you take the uniform off put a suit on and you go to work someplace um, I left the Army after 54 years, though, because I started out as a dependent mm. with my father and then transitioned into active duty on my own. And I walked away one day and went to work the next day someplace else. Um, the only thing I think most of us miss are the people. I mean, there's, there's aspects of the military that are fun, interesting. There's also a lot of it that we'd rather leave behind. <laughs> but the... Um, uh, the people are what I think were the big connection. You just run into so many good people who are in the part of the military and the way they get things done and their their attitude and the, the drive. And that's somewhat missing in the civilian world. It's not exactly the same. Command Sergeant Major, I mean, for you, uh, both of you, leaders of men, and you within the Special Operations Command, that is a very tightly knit community, a very close community. What was it like the day that you had to, uh, you know, put on the civilian clothes well, for the first time? for me, it was pretty seamless. I, uh, I stepped out of uh, my uniform and, and went to work for the Army's Professional Association, the Association of the United States Army. I was the director of non-commissioned officer and soldier programs, and it was a lot like being uh, in the military. 
Uh, I was a command sergeant major at uh, at the at uh, AUSA, uh, and uh, as you know, uh, command sergeant majors when they're on active duty, uh, nobody knows for sure what they're supposed to be doing, and everybody's <laughs> afraid to ask. <laughs> I, I've learned recently that everyone thinks the command sergeant major's primary focus is the PT belts. There's been a big discussion <laughs> on that. I think Army Forces Command. There's a four-star general who questioned that, and I have to imagine his command sergeant major. Went to him and said, sir, what are you doing? You are not allowed to question that belt. Now, the two of you are currently involved with the United States of America Vietnam War commemoration. Let's talk a little bit about that. For those who don't know what exactly the organization that you're with is doing, General Jackson, as the director, I'm sure that you can tell them. Sure. Well, uh, the country itself has, uh, over time, decided that it was going to pay special attention to past conflicts and the service of those who served at that time at the 50th anniversary of those conflicts. We've taken care of World War II in Korea. It's Vietnam's turn now. And, of course, Vietnam has a, a little bit of a different connotation in the whole business because as those people who were around then know that the service members who served over there or served anywhere in the country or around the world at that time, when they came home, they were not afforded the same welcome that we see today. And so uh, this commemoration started in 2012 by an act of Congress. Uh, DOD was charged with running it. I work for the Department of Defense. And we've got five objectives given to us by Congress. Uh, the one that keeps us the most busy is to find and help America all around the country find their veterans and thank them for their service 50 years ago. And so that's what we're actively involved with doing, and it takes up a significant amount of our time to focus on objective one. The other four objectives have some component that supports that, but they're a little bit different. And we've actually spoken to uh, someone who's uh, affiliated with the commemoration before, uh, Brigadier General John Rose, who came in, Vietnam veteran himself, mm -hmm. infantry officer, although as he told us, he wasn't planning on being an infantry officer. He wasn't one until he got to Vietnam, and then... As the military so often does, they christened him an infantry officer after he got there. The Vietnam War generation is integral to what's going on in the veteran community now and has been for years. When I joined my VFW post up in Long Island, our post commander was a Vietnam vet, Bruce Brenner. And they made it very clear to me that their goal was to ensure that no other group of veterans were ever treated the way that the Vietnam veteran was. Command Sergeant Major Spencer you, of course, are a Vietnam veteran yourself. You were wounded in Vietnam, as I understand it. Uh, what can you tell us about the difference that you see between when you came home and when you see uh, the young men and women coming home from places like Iraq, Afghanistan today? Well, uh, first of all, we're doing it correctly uh, today. We're treating our, Vietnam, our veterans today much better and the way they should have been treated all along. Uh, back uh, when I was coming back from uh, from. Uh, from Vietnam, uh, the American people seem to have trouble separating the war from the warrior. Mm. Uh, and I think we've got it pretty, uh, pretty correct uh, this time. Uh, and, and I can tell you that I, I think that our Vietnam veterans has a lot to do with the way that, uh, way that we're treating veterans today. Because if you, it's not unusual to go to someplace, Starbucks, uh, the airport, and, uh, and see uh, a soldier in uniform or a service member in uniform uh, being thanked by a civilian. Uh, uh, in, in fact, I've had uh, folks buy me a cup of coffee just because I'm a veteran. And I think if you look very closely at the people who are doing this, and you'll find that they're Vietnam veterans. And they're doing it because they certainly do not want uh, 
these veterans to be treated the way that our Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home. So I think, I think that's part of our legacy. I really do. Did you ever think back in that time, it may be, uh, may be hard to remember if this thought ever crossed your mind, but did you ever think we'd get to the point, considering how the public viewed Vietnam and, and as you said, failed to separate the war from the warrior, did you ever think that we'd get to a point where we are like today, where we're going to have almost a million motorcyclists riding uh, in memory of those who are still unaccounted for from Vietnam and other conflicts? I, I thought that history would, uh, would, would treat us better, uh, that, that uh, the further we, the more distance we put between us and the war, uh, we would be treated a little bit better. We would, we would uh, uh, take our place in the ranks of uh, the veterans uh, uh, that, that had defended this country from, uh, from the very beginning. I didn't, I didn't imagine it being as well done as well as it is now. I, I think uh, so. Yes, I thought we would, uh, you know, we would get our deserved place in history, but I didn't realize uh, that 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 we would be as treated as well as we are. We're speaking with retired Command Sergeant Major Jimmy Spencer and retired Major General James Jackson, both here representing the United States of America Vietnam War commemoration. General Jackson, you are the director of the commemoration, and you work for DOD. I mean, the government's gotten involved in this. It's fantastic that they're doing this. Let's talk about another event that started off not founded by the government, but by four Vietnam veterans. Got a couple dozen bikers to ride into Washington, D.C. back in 1985. Here we are, 33 years later. They're expecting somewhere around 1 million motorcycles rolling into Washington, D.C. with Rolling Thunder. Before we talk too much about Rolling Thunder and what it's all about, how impressive is it to you that it grew from that, from four guys just wanting to get together into almost a million people? Maybe over a million will be out there this weekend. Well, one, it's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a great thing to happen. It's, it's the wonderful thing about this country the, the ability of the country to recognize past wrongs and then do something to fix it uh, never ceases to amaze me. And that's what's happened here. You know, the, the, as we travel around the country and we participate in events with our commemorative partners out there, uh, we have supported over 13,000 events since we started. And what we see is the American public has come to grips with what happened 50 years ago. And essentially what they're saying is that was wrong and we need to change it. And so Rolling Thunder is a visible manifestation of that. And the popularity of it uh, is an indication that the American people will glom onto this kind of stuff because it makes sense. And you, you can't ask people <clears throat> to go and give up their potential lives, their well-being, and all the rest of the things that go with that without <clears throat> some degree of gratitude shown back to them. And that's what's happening across the country today. And so the commemoration uh, finds a very close link to organizations like Rolling Thunder. And we've been participating with them for now about three years. And we're growing every year. So we're trying to find new ways to deal with a million motorcyclists. And how do we connect and find veterans down there? And uh, we're finding new ways to do that. How did the connection between the commemoration and Rolling Thunder come along? Was there just a, a reaching out, uh, an offering of an olive branch between the two? Well, originally we, we, we tied into some organizations that do media support for Rolling Thunder, uh, Sightline Media and some of the other organizations, and they got us started. And so the first time we played with them, uh, they wrote some articles for us and they helped share our message. Uh, just last year, they offered to give us some space down on the mall and so forth. And so we tried that. Uh, 
Uh, we went to school on that, and this year we're going to do that plus more. And we're going to try to invade North Parking where they park over a million motorcycles <laughs> and see if we can put our people on the ground, walking through that crowd, finding veterans, and be able to offer thanks and appreciation. Now, along with my people, we've got over 40 individuals who have signed up to come down and work with us as volunteers, organizations like the Uniform Services. We've got... Uh, some of this, uh, some of the ceremonial troops that are here in D.C. have offered to help. We've got a wives club that is a spouses club that is part of the military that's going to come out. The Daughters of the American Revolution and TSA is coming out to help us like they did last year. So these people come down and we give them the materials and they go out and find the vets and they stop them and they basically tell them on behalf of the country, we want, want to give you a pin recognition of your service and thank you for what you're doing. And then they usually throw in a welcome home. And depending on gender, there may be a hug or there may be just a handshake. <laughs> when you think about Rolling Thunder, Command Sergeant Major Spencer, as a Vietnam veteran yourself, as someone who saw firsthand uh, how things were done back then and the, the lack of welcome homes, how impressive is it to you to see so many people, both veterans and non-veterans, out there rolling along? Absolutely. And it's, uh, it's very impressive. Uh, but I have to tell you that uh, we uh, at the Vietnam War Commemoration can't do this by ourselves. We, uh, we, uh, our, our method is that we employ or recruit commemorative partners. And Rolling Thunder is uh, one of uh, 11,000 commemorative partners. Now, now they're, they're broken up into chapters, but many of the chapters are, are commemorative partners. And, and this is arguably the, the largest gathering of veterans uh, that you're going to find anytime, anywhere in this country. And it, for us, that's absolutely perfect. And, and I have to tell you, we've got uh, a little over 6 million uh, Vietnam veterans out there that we know of. And so far, we've only reached about 2.2 uh, million of them. Mm. And this is a great opportunity for us. And, and we are under some sort of time, time constraints, too, because I have to tell you that we're losing Vietnam veterans uh, to the tune of about 500 a day. And that's something that people don't think about i mean i remember being a kid and there were world war one veterans still around and we thought of them well those are the old guys and then the world war ii veterans were our grandfathers our uncles are are there people like that now they are the quote old guys the korean war veterans we're losing more of them each day vietnam veterans think about how far we are from the vietnam war when it began you're talking people at the youngest pushing 70 i mean mm -hmm. there are they're getting older, as as people do, each and every one of us, uh, except for me. I'm actually getting younger. <laughs> uh, you may have noticed uh, throughout this interview. But how important do you think it is for people to recognize that fact, that the Vietnam veterans are a, a group that's aging and we are losing 500 a day? Absolutely. And, and uh, we are doing our best uh, to get the word out before it's too late. Uh, and, and we need help. We need help from the American people. To, to help us thank and honor these Vietnam veterans before it's too late. You know, Eric, just to glom onto that real quick, every event we go to, almost uniformly, there's one person out of that group who will come up and say, this is the first time someone has thanked me. And then if you tie that back to the loss of over 500 a day that's going on, there's a veteran that if that event had not taken place would probably pass away never having received the gratification or some kind of gratitude from the country. And so that's what's happening. And what's neat is the people who are offering that thanks 
walk away feeling good about that event, and the veterans walk away feeling good about that event. And so the bottom line is this is a healthy thing for the country to be doing, and it's the right thing to do. Of course, we're speaking with retired Major General James Jackson, Director of the United States of America Vietnam War Commemoration, and retired Command Sergeant Major Jimmy Spencer, a Vietnam Special Forces veteran. The veterans who this event, Rolling Thunder, is about never got a thank you, never got to come home. This is to acknowledge those still listed as POW MIA, which overall, dating back to World War I, there are over 80,000, the majority of which World War II, quite a few from World War I, quite a few still from Vietnam. We've talked on this show to the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. It is not believed, despite what Hollywood might tell us, that there are prisoners of war still being held in Vietnam or Cambodia or any place like that. This isn't really about that, Command Sergeant Major, is it? This is about trying to find those who are the other part of POW, MIA, the missing in action that deserve to be brought home to give closure to their family. How Absolutely. do you feel about that? Absolutely. It, it's, uh, it's, as, a, as a veteran, as, as I'm sure you feel, it's, you know, you never leave a fallen comrade. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's, you know, that's part of our ethos. And uh, we are doing everything we can as a nation to recover these uh, uh, missing in action. Uh, but we, as a commemoration, are, are honoring the families as well as the Vietnam veterans. And we have special, special pins and special certificates for those who have lost, uh, who have lost their, their, you know, their husbands or their wives uh, since returning from Vietnam. And we have special uh, uh, things that we do for, for family members of of uh, killed in action and uh, and that sort of thing bringing attention to those who gave their lives uh, general again as the command sergeant major said there was a period of time particularly relating to vietnam where there was an inability or a lack of desire by the american public to separate the warrior from the war those who are still with us some of them are getting those thank yous finally a little bit too late in my book uh you know should have happened a lot earlier how important do you think it is to shine a light on those who never got that thank you, who were over there doing uh, what they were ordered to do, you know, fighting for their country and, and wearing that uniform and never got to come home? Well, that's what Memorial Day is all about. And those of us who have served know and, and live that every day of our lives. The wall down in D.C. represents over 58,000 from the United States who never did get the opportunity to come home. The majority of those names on that wall are young people. War is a young person event. And when you stop and think about that, the loss of productivity, loss of aspirations and dreams, families, and so forth, it's, it's, it's important to remember that. The majority of the people who went there were probably 18 to 20 years old. Mm. And they're at the beginning of trying to set their goals in life and what they want and what they want to do. And they gave that up because the government asked them to go. And because the government sent them there, the government has an obligation to remember. Mm. The other aspect of that is you can't retain a force like we have today without recognizing those who went before. The people serving today need to see that so that they know that when it's their turn to leave, they'll be recognized and thanked for what they've done for the country. And so it's all connected. And so every day we do this, we're supporting the future, we're taking care of the past and the present, which is really very, very valuable. 
the youth that you mentioned makes me think of uh, we have a Memorial Day special that'll be airing on Monday on uh, numerous CBS News radio stations around the country. Uh, we talked to a Marine who's now a professional professional mixed martial arts fighter, has the names of the 19 Marines from his unit who were killed in action. The average age of those 19 Marines is 21 years old. Right. It's one of those things. That it's it's not unusual to travel someplace and someone will come up with a picture of something of a friend of theirs who was in Vietnam and died in Vietnam. And it's always an 18, 19, 20-year-old individual. And um, many of them will remember to today. So that person would be 70, 75 years old today. And yet they do not forget and that is valuable. The country has an obligation to never forget one of these people. Along with Rolling Thunder, there's a lot of other things that the United States of America Vietnam War commemoration is doing in honor of this 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War. What can you tell us about the things that are coming up in the future that you're particularly excited about, General? Well, before I go to the future, let me talk about the past briefly. 29 March, uh, National Vietnam War Veterans Day passed by a, an act of Congress uh, 2017, signed by the president. This was the first anniversary this year. This year, we were able to reach out across the country. All 50 states and six territories participated with us. They did events in their location. We had the exchange services of over 200 plus across the country and to include overseas. Over 700 uh, locations under the VA's control participated with us. We shipped out uh, right around 180,000 lapel pins uh, and uh, supported that event all across the country. A wonderful event. And um, that's the past. Now, the future, and we've got Rolling Thunder obviously coming up. We've got multiple events taking place uh, thereafter. Uh, big day for us coming up will obviously be Veterans Day coming up in November, and mm -hmm. we'll be looking forward to that. But we support the commemorative partners when they do events. And uh, we're doing uh, somewhere in the neighborhood about three, 400 events a, uh, a month where we look at and we support. Uh, over the course of this year, 2018, I think we'll exceed about 4,000 events that we will support. Wow. Most of the time, we're just sending materials. Sometimes we put people on the road to go speak. I've got a team on the road today going to Scranton, Pennsylvania, and uh, we'll have a big team supporting Rolling Thunder here in town this weekend. That's something like, I'm horrible at math, I'm a, I'm a words guy, but that's something like 14, 15 events a day that are taking place that you're involved in, which is uh, fantastic, and that's why the work that the United States of America Vietnam War commemoration, I'm so glad to be able to speak to the director of that commemoration, Major General James Jackson and retired Command Sergeant Major Jimmy Spencer here on the morning briefing. Gentlemen, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And if you're interested in finding out more, you can go to VietnamWar50th.com. That's VietnamWar50TH.com. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. AMVETS Executive Director Joe Chanelli after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, May 24th, 2018 edition. I am your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. ConnectingVets.com, your website. 
focusing entirely on the veterans community, trying to offer you information, actionable information, great stuff on benefits, great stuff on education, employment, and just cool stuff that we think you'd like to know about. All of it is available at ConnectingVets.com and by following us on social media at ConnectingVets on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all those. Uh, We're still working on a MySpace page. Tom hasn't gotten back to us. This has taken longer than, I don't know, trying to get an ID card out of the VA. Speaking of which, a gentleman who first joined us and was one of the first ones to put in an application, the executive director of AMVETS, Joe Chanelli, my former Defense Information School classmate, joins us now. Joe, good morning. How are you? Never better. Good morning, Eric. And no, I have not received you my card You haven't. Oh, and, and it is going to have that Office Depot logo on it because some people have received them, just not you. You'd think they would have said like, oh, Joe, the guy from AMVETS? Yeah, let's find his name and print that one off in the first batch. How many different statements have we received from the VA over the past several months? And about half of them have specifically said, no Home Depot logo. Oh, yeah, well, th- that would be true because it's Office Depot, not Home oh. Depot. But <laughs> There you go. So, you know, they were they were being truthful. Yeah. If they, It's not going to have a Home Depot sticker on it. Oh, are you sure? Wait a second. <laughs> they tricked us. Of course, AMVETS, a.k.a. American Veterans, working in the VSO space to try and advocate for veterans, keep an eye on issues that are going to affect veterans on the national and local level. Joe, there's been a lot going on. And just yesterday, some big news, the VA Mission Act passes through the Senate. We've talked about it on this show so much. In essence, to break it down for people, the veterans items, many of them that were removed from the omnibus spending bill were then put into the VA Mission Act uh, there were political reasons that they were removed from the omnibus, essentially, that we don't need to go into again. They've now passed it through the House, through the Senate. It's just waiting on one thing, that being the president's signature. How is AMVETS looking at the Mission Act and the fact that it got passed through the Senate yesterday? Uh, we're, we're very excited. Um, and there are three really key parts of this. Um, this uh, reforms and funds the, the community care part or the choice part. Um, the asset review, and of course, what's really important here, that what's landmark and historic here, is that uh, it's going to provide caregiver benefits to all veterans who need it, not just the post 9/11 veterans. Um, this passed overwhelmingly uh, bipartisan, which is tremendous to see, uh, especially when we get to the full Senate or the full House. And after just a, a month and a half ago, as you said, it was used as a political football. It was great to see everyone get smart here and pass it. Um, another big part of this was that all of the VSOs, and you know, we have the big six, and we talk about that here on your show a lot. And you know, we've been in lockstep here for a while now. Mm. But this was almost thirty organizations came together, and you had organizations from every different era came together. But you also had organizations, some that are partisan by nature, uh, such as a Concerned Veterans for America. They were on this uh, very much, and they helped a lot. Um, convinced the Freedom Caucus, hmm. uh, for instance, and Vote Vets did go out there and speak a little bit to the uh, further left. So you had people because where really where the opposition started on this was the two ends of the spectrum. Most of the moderates and uh, were supportive of this since the beginning, but it was really great to see it come together. I passed through the Senate yesterday, I believe, ninety four to five. Yeah, so. yeah, and uh, you know, with with one abstention, and there's there's you know nothing. It's like the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's almost nothing that gets through the House or the Senate with 100% voting. 94-plus percent with that abstention, that's not bad. That's pretty good. And I think when you have 
uh, both concerned veterans for America and vote vets both on board with something, that's a good sign that it's something that everyone can agree on. If those two groups can agree on it, I think everybody can probably come together on it. And with the exception of five senators, that is the case with the Mission Act. Those five senators, I really would like to ask them, like, what what is the reasoning behind it? And I've heard some discussion about basically the funding for it being an issue and that it doesn't really answer some of the questions with uh, the choice program, that it eventually phases out the choice program and works towards something new. But uh, are you hearing anything on why you would have had five senators vote against this? Sure, that the unions, uh, the federal employee unions are pretty strongly against this. Um not exactly sure why. I think, as I've said here on the show with you a couple of weeks ago, they pretty much said, no matter what you do, we're going to be against this. They don't want community care. They want to have everything in-house. And ideally, that would certainly be what we'd want as well. Right. Um, and there are still more than 30,000 vacancies across the VA, and especially on the healthcare side of that. Um, but there is one, one big part that we have a problem with that we really want to see fixed and uh, addressed through regulations and that's that there are no real standards or oversight of the community care providers. Mm. So obviously the VA has to answer to Congress. These private doctors and nurses do not have to. And so there does need to be some type of oversight to ensure that veterans receive great care when they're outside the VA as well. Yeah, and that is certainly something that I think we can all agree on, that whatever whatever the method of getting it done, getting people the best care possible is the end goal. And if it's not the end goal for someone, that person needs to check themselves and, uh, and fix themselves very quickly, or we'll send Command Sergeant Major Spencer after him. <laughs> Boy, that guy, man. Woo! Sometimes you meet people and you're just like, wow, that's an impressive individual who... He may be quite a bit older than me right now. I'm pretty sure he could still kick my rear end up and down this <laughs> office if he wanted to. Speaking of kicking rear ends, there's been a lot of rear ends kicked around over at the VA, kicked out of offices, kicked up and down the hallways. Now it looks like maybe a temporary removal of acting VA Secretary Robert Wilkie is in the cards, saying that essentially as the confirmation process goes on, he cannot be sitting in that uh, acting VA secretary seat. Uh, is that accurate? Does he need to be removed, or is it just uh, is it something that where it's the optics are better? Like why why does he need to be removed from this? Yes, by law he needs uh. to be removed. There is there are provisions out there that in, with extenuating circumstances and an extremely short confirmation process he could stay on. And I think that argument could probably be made, but I and vets we do believe it's a foregone conclusion that he will step down shortly after Memorial Day. Um, we know he's got some commitments uh, for Memorial Day, and we certainly hope he fulfills those and believe he will. Uh, we'll be out at Arlington ourselves uh, with him. Uh, but we believe Tuesday or Wednesday he will step down, most likely go back over to the Pentagon. Uh, remember, he came from the Pentagon where he's been undersecretary. We believe he'll go back there and fulfill that mission while he prepares for the confirmation hearing. Um, the bottom line is they're going to ask him some pretty serious questions. They're going to want to take a lot of his time. Uh, over at the Senate, as they should, to do what we hope is a thorough but speedy confirmation process. Um, we do expect that he will be confirmed. And Senator Tester, who's the ranking member, the uh, the leading Democrat on the uh, Senate uh, Veterans Affairs Committee, has already expressed some support for him. He did say, of course, as he should, we have, we've got to complete this, uh, the, oh, yeah. the background check, if you will. Ronnie but, Jackson, uh, Ronnie two Jackson. words for you. You yeah. got it. Um, so... We do think he'll step down, and we're not calling for him to step down because we think he's doing a bad job. In fact, we right now 
we're very supportive of Robert Wilkie. We think that what he's done in the first two months here as acting secretary has been very positive. He's definitely put his homework uh, in, no doubt. Does it put the VSOs like AMVETS into an odd position where you have someone who's been serving as the acting secretary who's now being nominated to be the secretary? And typically, the VSOs uh, don't get involved in the political appointment process too much other than to say, you know, you want to have your input on it. Now that it's someone who you're familiar with, what he's done over the past couple of months, and as you said, you seem to be uh, pretty happy with how he's been performing in that job. Can you then openly say, like, we support his nomination for this? I mean, what what does how does that work for the VSOs? Yes, we, we can. I mean, there's certainly no restrictions. Um, we are restricted by our own governing documents and by the IRS to not support or oppose any political candidate mm. or party. Um, that's not what this this is. Um, we supported uh, David Shulkin um, for secretary as well, and that was because he had spent a year as undersecretary for health. So if we're able to really see, and I mean, these people are kind of going through job interviews, if you will. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're absolutely, we're, we're able to do this. And the, um, the White House has asked us for our feedback uh, this time around um, before they made the announcement as well. So this is a positive step of collaboration. We continue to improve collaboration with this White House. Um, with that, we are calling on the White House to elevate the deputy secretary, Thomas Bowman, who's a retired Marine colonel. Um, he's a retired staff director from the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, extremely well qualified, extremely knowledgeable on all the, the most pressing issues right now. It only makes sense. Oh, and by the way, it's mandated by law that as acting sec or as deputy secretary, he should be elevated to acting secretary when that becomes a vacancy. Right. Um, so we're, we're very, we're, we're hopeful that will happen. Uh, we do know there's been a lot of politics still happening over uh, at the VA central office. So we don't know what will happen. Um, I, I would say though, if they're not going to elevate Tom Bowman, then they should probably just let him go. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, I wonder when it comes to Wilkie, if he's thinking like, Oh, you know, this could have been kind of a break, but no, he's got another job that he's still doing. As you said, <laughs> deputy undersecretary of defense for, I believe personnel and readiness. Yeah, is, he's is actually been doing both there. jobs simultaneously months because i remember yeah. talking about uh with the bringing of alcohol into the commissaries i believe right. it was he was the one who signed off on that and i said wait a second is this the same robert wilkie he was literally doing both jobs at the same time multitasking and, and i had a private meeting with uh acting secretary wilkie and asked him about that and asked him if he was being overstretched and if he's really able to give the commitment that he needs to both jobs says he has great staff uh, who he was able to work with over at the Pentagon before he left and that they've been carrying the ball for him well over there. And I think that's what will continue to happen as he goes through the confirmation process. We're speaking with Joe Chanelli, executive director of AMVETS. Don't know why I pronounced your last name that way, but <laughs> I did. Marine Corps veteran. Uh, and you just mentioned uh, – Bowman, who's over there at the VA. I believe that he made an appearance, didn't he, at the AMVETS Veterans Healing Summit yesterday, didn't he? Uh, he did not. He actually, oh, I thought he, he was. He, uh, you probably saw on Twitter, he actually stopped by our headquarters. Oh, your and, headquarters. And, and okay, and I knew he was doing something with AMVETS He yesterday. met our staff. He sat down with our national commander and myself and just kind of talked about the state of the VA and some of the important things that are happening and how we can continue to uh, support that those things because – you know, what we were talking about are really important and they are things that we've helped instigate. Of course, he wasn't at 
the AMVETS Healing Veterans Summit, but it did take place. <laughs> he was at the AMVETS office. I got my uh, signals crossed there a little bit up in the old brain pan. Tell me about that summit. How sure. did it go? You had a, a, some great panels over there, including doctors, veterans, all sorts of people. Yeah, so we did actually have the uh, person who is running VHA, veterans, the Veterans Healthcare Administration. Oh, okay. So Dr. Carolyn Clancy. So she's the lead doctor in the VA. Uh, she came out, uh, some of her staff, uh, we had a, a big focus on suicide prevention, PTSD, and traumatic brain injuries. Uh, we had three different panels, three different stakeholders with veterans, with providers, and with policymakers. Um, and although we were uh, speaking to a Washington audience, uh, we made sure that everything was in regular <laughs> regular English. Um, <laughs> but, but we think it went really, really well. That um, was our first one out. And I know you had Sherman Gillums here on the show last week. We appreciate that. And yeah. I know he's really appreciate, he really uh, enjoyed being here. And a you know really important message, and um, we're right back at it next month. We'll be holding a town hall meeting and a, another type of panel like this down in Nashville. We'll be coming back to Pennsylvania. We're going to be in Florida and Missouri here in the next few months. Uh, so we're, we're taking the, this conversation across the country, and that, that's really what yesterday was all about. It was the beginning of a national conversation about what we need to do to better care for our veterans and to, to heal American veterans. How widespread do you think this can become, these healing veteran summits? As you said, you've got one taking place at, you know, leaving out, out of the Washington, D.C. area. I just had this one in Washington, D.C. Is this the kind of thing that you'd like to see everywhere eventually, like hitting all 50 states and in a bunch of cities? Absolutely. So from the national level, we plan to do this uh, at least once a month. Uh, we do, we're looking to, to strike out west there because I don't know if you're aware of this, but a veteran is much more likely, statistically speaking, to die by suicide on the West Coast than they are on the East Coast. So we need to figure out why that is. Uh, mm -hmm. It's really important to look at that type of data. Um, and, and so some of where we're going is, is targeted because these are areas where we see some weaknesses or we're also going to places where we see some strengths so we can figure out how to build on those things. And uh, that was something that we spoke with, um, you know, with the senior VA leadership here in the last few days on how to, to build on the strength too. It's not all negative here. Um, and we're bringing a lot of veterans in who have a lot of different experiences at, at the different levels. And it's just really important to listen to them and then to actually talk through and, and create real action plans. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, something that you had mentioned, and this is about the post offices. Now for a long time, I've seen veterans groups outside of the post office setting up shop to collect donations around Memorial Day, around the holidays. I've even seen it with the uh, Toys for Tots they, that the Marine Corps and everything does there. There's something going on with this that I think people need to know about. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is uh, something that uh, came to my attention last Friday. Um, as, as you said, there's different organizations, not just AMVETS, a lot of different organizations, their posts. For generations, I have, have set up a table outside of post offices all over the country, and they, they tip, and they always do it in a way that's not impeding traffic. They're not trying to make anyone feel uncomfortable. They're not actually asking for donations. What they do is they offer a paper flower, a white clover or a poppy, um, and, and usually has a little note on saying thank you for supporting veterans. And then they'll have a donation jar there. And so it's a very passive donate or very passive fundraiser but that money does help those posts help in their own communities. So that money stays right there in their communities. 
Well, what started happening on Friday was the post offices actually started coming out and telling the veterans you can't set up here. Uh, and most of these posts had called back in April and said we're coming out as normal and they were told okay. Um, so when this first came to my attention on Friday, I called the U.S. Postmaster General here in Washington and said what's going on. I was not able to speak with her directly. Um, didn't have time for that, I guess, but they did uh, connect me with some staff who then spent a few hours uh, talking with some lawyers is what they've told me. They came back and said, well, there's been a, a regulation on the books for a long time that says you can't beg for money. You can't campaign um, outside the post offices. And well, of course, we're not begging for money here. We're, except it's, a, it's a passive thing. Mm -hmm. Like, well, if we let veterans out there, we're going to have to let everybody come out there and they're going to want to sell their T-shirts outside and things like that. We're not selling anything, and none of these veterans organizations are. Um, this is this is absurd, in, in my opinion. Uh, they've also reached out to a uh, veterans outreach center that's federally funded um, in in the Rochester, New York area, which is that's how it first came to my attention. That's where I live, as we've talked before. And so they came to me and said, "Hey, Joe, well, this is this is crazy." And so they tried at the, the local level, nothing. So I've tried it to the national level. So now I'm in talks with the White House on this. And I, I do believe this is something, this is a federal issue right now, and this is something that's got to be stopped right away. They reached out to that Veterans Outreach Center and said, you can't come in June. You know, they um, and hand out flags. And that's, they're not even asking for donations. They don't even have a donation jar out there. Handing out flags. They're handing out flags on Flag Day, and they've been told they can't do it. There's a regulation against giving people things. Yeah. Knock it off. I mean, th this is the kind of thing that bureaucracy leads to that just boggles the mind and infuriates you. I mean, I, I saw this happen with my VFW post in Long Island where for years we would go and sell the poppies mm -hmm. at the mall. So I and, and just, the mall stopped doing it. I would just say it's 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 we don't want to call it sell poppies. Because well, I'm sure yeah, you've yeah, handed out poppies for the but poppies, I'm sure you've yeah. handed out poppies to people who did not give you anything back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right? So by true. definition right there you're, you're not, not selling, selling yeah, and true. That's the post office is trying to say, hey, you're out there selling things on our property. Yeah, and you're taking not, donations is right. what you're doing. And we're congressionally chartered nonprofit organizations that are all approved by CFC, which means something in the federal world. Yeah. You know? So that means you've been vetted. Um, but it, it's it's pretty crazy, and it's, uh, it's, it's blowing my mind, and I don't condone breaking the law. But yesterday in Rochester, New York yeah. – <laughs> Uh, some veterans apparently went over and took the flag down at the post office and, and left with it and put a note on the pole that says you do, you do not <laughs> deserve wow. to fly this flag. Wow. And one other really interesting thing to me, the number one employer of veterans in the United States is the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah. And so uh, we've already been reached out to by several veterans who are retired postal workers who are very upset with their former employer. This is this reeks of the kind of thing that just came up from on high where someone was reading through the rules and said, well, hmm, this, this doesn't jive with what I've seen. We need to change that. And nobody says anything about it. What do you think the likelihood is? I mean, you've, you've dealt with them now and you say you're in talks with the White House. What do you think the likelihood is that they actually uh, tell the post office, hey, knock it off, dum-dums? Because that's what the wording should be. Put out like an actual bill, the knock it off, dum-dums bill. So uh, obviously it's really difficult. If, uh, uh, knock it off, dum dum bills, great. I'm sure. I'm sure. Absolutely sure. <laughs> I'll I can write go it the up. hill right now and get. I'll write it up right now. Give me a cocktail napkin. Probably get knock it off, dum dums. Probably then... get a hundred sponsors by the end of the day too. <laughs> um, 
I know this is this is seems a, a little crazy, but I'm we're actually working right now to try to get an executive order uh, forcing the White House to allow. But honestly, though, we're probably too late. I mean, Memorial Day is just four days away. Yeah. I think it is here. So yeah, but this is something that going forward. If it happens once, then you get people, okay, you have the veterans up in Rochester that you talked about who absolutely should not have removed that flag from the post office, guys. It was not not cool at all. They have That was a not a good job. They have a federal investigator following that case now. Well, good luck. <laughs> good luck. And you know what? I'm sure there's going to be some people who are more than happy to answer this question. Yeah, I got the flag. What about it? Uh, again, should they do that? No, but I understand. Uh, doesn't mean you have to uh, approve, even if you uh, can understand. But while you have people who are willing to do that, in situations like this where it happens one year, that means there are going to be some people next year just go, well, we know we can't do that. You know, They're, ju- they're just going to give up because they don't have the manpower. They don't have the time to take care of this stuff. So, I mean, stopping it uh, before next year, making sure that those postal workers know next year uh, that it's okay for this to happen, uh, that, that seems pretty important to me. Absolutely, and we still have July 4th and Veterans Day. So yeah. there are other important holidays that the veterans are also out there for. And those are really important times because that's when people feel patriotic. They, they you know, That's the, the meaning of those holidays is to kind of reflect on what's been sacrificed for our freedom. And so people are more mindful at that time. They're more willing to make a donation. And so if you take away those opportunities from those posts, there's a whole lot of people who are normally helped in their communities who won't be able to receive that help. The cascading effect part about not allowing you to give out flags that just shows the inanity of what they're doing with, with how it's just, there's no reason for it. Why are you? Do, well, if we let you do that, we'd have to let everybody do that. Not true. You can let who you want to and who you not want to on there. And if it is, as you said, a congressionally chartered organization, uh, there you go. And I mean, here, here's the thing. If they, They're going to say, well, it's public property. No, it's government property. There's a difference between public property and government property. They can't allow you to do that. Again, if an executive order comes out, um, that's something that could address it uh, soon. And hopefully that's something that gets the attention of the White House. I want to talk to you very quickly as we finish up here on something that's got the attention of a lot of people. And Amvets is the only VSO to really take a stand. Hashtag please stand (laughs) when it came to the national anthem protests that were taking place in the NFL News coming out yesterday, the NFL's considering, uh, you know, enforcing penalties for those who kneel, fines for the teams who have players for kneel. How do you guys look at that? So we think the NFL is completely within the owners or completely within their constitutional rights as the employer. Um, we applaud the decision by the owners yesterday because uh, we think it strikes a good balance. We do believe in freedom of speech. We do think the players should have the uh, ability to be able to express themselves. But we have asked, and as you said, we said, please stand for the national anthem. Um, but by staying in the locker room, they're still going to be able to express themselves. If a notable star in particular doesn't come out for the national anthem, but the rest of the team does, the media is going to notice, and they're going to know that that's a protest. And they, they can even talk about it in their press conference after the game, their post-game press conference. Um, but we're not going to have – at least the NFL is now making it so that we will not have players who are disrespecting the flag during the national anthem. And we're, we're for that. We, we think this is a great idea. Um, this, this definitely is not over with. So we're looking forward to oh, seeing yeah. what happens here. The players may file a grievance through their union. It'll be yeah, interesting. Yeah, the players' union says that they weren't contacted about it. You know what I find interesting is that the National Basketball Association 
has rules requiring all players to be out of the locker room and standing during the national anthem. No one seems to have a problem with that. I don't understand what the difference is. I guess it's the media attention on the NFL issue with Kaepernick and everything. Of course, the NBA issues go back to a player for the Denver Nuggets years ago, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who decided he was going to sit during the national anthem, caused an uproar. NBA changed the rules back then. Not a big deal. All of a sudden, today, it's a huge deal that the NFL wants to do that. It's just fascinating stuff. Also fascinating, all the great work that AMVETS is doing for the veteran community. And there's a place that people can go to find out about that work, isn't there, Joe? If people want to find out more about AMVETS and what you guys are all about, where do they visit? Please come visit us at AMVETS.org or on any of the social media platforms, even MySpace at AMVETS HQ. Oh, you guys have Tom in your top eight. Man. We got Justin Timberlake. Jake needs to work on He owns MySpace now. That's true. All right. You've been listening to The Morning Briefing. We'll be back with the Friday edition tomorrow. Have a great day. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.